Please be seated. Wasn't sure if that was my line, but here we go. I'm reading from Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when, you, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. My, may the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt with her harshly, dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well shall be called Berlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. a happy Mother's Day passage. <laughs> I did choose it for this day, and we'll, 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 we'll explain why as we, as we go on. But it, it is a doozy. But happy Mother's Day. Very glad to get to be with you all today. All right. Well, before we dig in, I would love to uh, take a moment to pray. And I'm going to have an older saint lead us in prayer. We're going to uh, use George Matheson, who's a, an old Scottish preacher, as a launching point into our time with God. So would you please pray these words with me, and then we will go from there. I'm going to say it out loud. You can just pray in your heart. Divine Spirit, illumine to me the words of the Lord. Show me the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Father, we ask that you would answer that prayer for us this morning. Father, open our eyes to see your goodness, even in 
a hard text. Um, Lord, we, we recognize that you are the God who sees us this morning. And so we ask that you would see us, that you would hear us, that you would provide peace and comfort, that you would help us to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the other day uh, I was at a a gymnastics gym that's close by. Uh, They have what's called open gym. Uh, I'm sure it happens multiple times, but the only time that I know of is on Thursdays between 12 and 1. And uh, Katie usually takes the kids there, um, but I got to do it this last Thursday. We kind of figure we should get all of our kids' gymnastics ambitions out of the way now, because given their genes, they probably don't have a future in the sport. Um, I'm 6'4", Katie's 5'9", 5'9", something like that. Um, Either way, too tall to be a gymnast, so our kids are are, are having at it. Um, So I was there with my two children, Oliver's 5, Harper's 3, and then one of our uh, neighborhood friends was also there with her two, three kids. Two of them were old enough to participate, though. So I had like four kids that were under my purview, and some of you do this often, just as part of your lives. That's double the amount of children that I'm normally used to watching. And throughout our time at the gym, uh, I kept hearing, you know, Dad, look at me. Mr. Nick, look at me. Dad, look at me. And it was amazing. Um, it was. Um, but I think, it, it, to me, it, after like, getting out of the, the shock of it all, uh, it reminded me of, of just something really sweet about kids, especially younger kids. They're not shy or self-conscious about their desire to be seen. Even this morning, it's Mother's Day morning, Oliver wakes up. The first thing that he wanted to do was go and see Katie, who we were letting sleep for just a little bit longer, because it was Mother's Day. And he wanted to give her his present, something that he had made at school. And, and, uh, He wanted to do this because he loves his mom, but he also wanted to do it because of something that he had made. And again, it was a way of saying, Mom, look at me. Now, most of us no longer yell at those we love to look at us, but everyone still has a desire to be noticed. We want to know that someone is watching out for us and will be there for us when we need them. And we know how hard it is when we feel unseen. Now again, today is Mother's Day, which is a special day because it's a day where we take the time to do something that we should do far more often, and that is stop and see, appreciate, celebrate the work of the mothers in our lives, the work that often goes unnoticed. But one of the beautiful things that we have that we're assured of here in this text, a heart longing that we know is met, is that our God, despite what anyone else might be doing, our God sees us. As Hagar declares to him in verse 13, you are a God of seeing. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, our God notices. He sees and he cares for you. So before we dig into this text, I would encourage you to take a moment and do a little internal evaluation. Are there areas in your life where you don't feel seen right now? Areas where you don't feel appreciated or cared for? Does it feel like no one is looking out for you? 
Well, friends, if that is the case, it is my hope and prayer that the Spirit would apply His Word to your heart this morning. All right, so I want us to to jump in. Um, Before we get too deep into this text, too deep into Genesis 16, I want to take a moment to orient ourselves in the story thus far. Oh, that's the verse that I just read, um, that God is a God of seeing. So we're going to take a minute and, and look at the backstory. So how did we get to this incident in Genesis 16. Well, when we get to Genesis 16, we have three main characters. We have Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. Now, Abram was, for all intents and purposes, an ordinary man. But God chose him, called him, and promised that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him and make his name great so that he would be a blessing. Now, the implication here is that Abram would have many descendants. Right? We usually don't have a nation of one person. Right? Abram would go on to produce. Otherwise, how could he fulfill that promise? But there was a problem. When God originally made that promise, Abram was 75 years old, and he had no children. So we're getting kind of a late start here with this whole nation-building thing. But Abram trusted God and carried on, but time passed, and Abram began to worry that God wouldn't actually follow through on his promise. Now, we see this worry made explicit in Genesis 15, where Abram comes before God and says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. This verse comes right after God promises to Abram that he will receive a very great reward. But Abram looks around and says, well, that sounds nice, but I still don't have any children. And as it stands, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. Now, it's a common practice in the ancient Near East for a childless man to adopt an heir, largely to ensure that he would receive a proper burial. But an adopted heir was not a son. It wasn't a seed to inherit the promise. And God affirms that Abraham is correct, and he reiterates, though, the promise. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And in the next verses, he doubles down. God brings Abram outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram would become a great nation. God would come through for him. But that would happen on God's terms, according to God's timeline. And so that backstory sets us up for the action that takes place in chapter 16, where we see a powerful contrast between human blindness and the God who sees. So I want us to start by looking at human blindness. By the time we get to Genesis 16, 10 years have passed since God's initial promise to Abram. So now instead of being 75 and childless, Abram is 85 and still childless. So Sarai, his wife, decides to get involved. And she's got an idea, which we read about in verses 1 through 2. 
Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. See, Sarai is practical. She's looking at a situation honestly and in the logic of her time. We've established that Abram is 85 at the beginning of Genesis 16. Well, Sarai is around 10 years younger than Abram, putting her somewhere around 75. So younger than Abram, but still not really in prime childbearing years. She points out that God up to this point has prevented her from bearing children, and so she offers up her servant Hagar as a surrogate. Well, at the time, this was a perfectly respectable practice. This happened across cultures in the ancient Near East. A child born to a servant girl could be regarded as the wife's own child if she had no children of her own. But even though this was an acceptable cultural practice, this was not okay with God and was not at all what he had promised. But as we see at the end of verse 2, Abram follows Sarai's advice. He sleeps with Hagar and disaster ensues. The story continues. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Well, Hagar, according to plan, got pregnant. Abram and Sarai, perhaps in their minds, had finally secured God's plan. They had done the thing in their minds, what God had called them to do. Although, as we see, this is not at all what God had called them to do. But Abram now had an heir, his own child who would be able to inherit the promise. And by taking matters into their own hands, though, they made a total mess of things. Yes, Hagar had conceived, but soon thereafter we read, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And understandably so. She wasn't consulted about whether or not she wanted to be Abram's wife, let alone have his child. She was being used as a pawn in a game she had no interest in playing. And so she looked at Sarai with contempt. And the literal rendering of this part of verse 4 is, her mistress was dishonorable in her eyes. But Sarai doesn't seem to be able to see her sin. And instead, she plays the victim, as we read in verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. See, Sarai fails to see Hagar as anything more than her servant. See, in her mind, Hagar was being elevated in her marriage to Abram. So the fact that she didn't appreciate her new status and the fact that she was pregnant, something Sarai had been longing for for decades, the fact that she looked at that and and wasn't appreciative, Sarai, again, blinded by her own sin, she couldn't fathom Hagar's attitude. Now, while there's nothing justifiable about her actions, using Hagar in this way, 
Sarai's pain and the pain that led her to suggest something so ridiculous, even if it was culturally acceptable, is a pain that can make a day like today, right? a day like Mother's Day, so complicated. Hagar's attitude likely felt like adding insult to injury, insult to horrible grief and loss. So Sarai, in her pain, turned to anger, begins lashing out. First, she lashes out at Abram, but Abram wants nothing to do with this. And he responds in verse 6 by saying, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. Abram's attitude, his response here is basically a way of saying, this was your idea, keep me out of it. Now, reading this story, you might be wondering to yourself, who are these people, and are we really supposed to emulate them? And that is a a very valid question. Um, A few weeks ago, I went on a, a camping trip Uh, with a group of about 12 guys. This was a a bachelor party. Um, And I knew going into this trip that I would be one of two Christians in in this context. And one of my first encounters there, as soon as I arrived at the campsite, uh, I met a guy that I didn't know. And so I introduced myself and I asked him, you know, how do you know the groom? And his first response was church. And I looked at him sideways because I I know the groom. I know the groom doesn't go to church and never has gone to church. And he, I think he caught my look um, and so quickly explained, like, no, 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 and, and then told me how he knew the groom. And um, I was still, like, kind of, I was just putting things together in my head. And uh, he, he tried to backtrack a little bit, and he said, well, you know, I, I didn't mean to offend you if you're a, if you're a church person. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not offended, but I, I am a church person. Um, <laughs> in, in fact, I'm a pastor. And then that became, like, just a, a point of intrigue for the rest of our time there. Um, and a little bit later that night, uh, we were standing around the campfire, and another guy that I'd started talking to earlier came up to me. He was like, okay, so, so you're really a pastor? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really a pastor. Um, and and he, he then asked, so, so like, you know a lot about the Bible? I'm like, well, yeah, it's just part of the job. And um, he's like, okay, okay, cool. There's some really messed up stuff in there. Uh, and I had to grant that. Yes, there's some really messed up stuff in there. This, this is a, a, a case in point. Right? Stories like this certainly qualify as messed up stuff. And this is where it is really important to establish what the Bible is actually about. So I think often our expectations when approaching the Bible, but really this is true about the way that we can approach life in general, is that the Bible is going to create very clean and clear categories of good people and bad people. We've got heroes and we've got villains. We emulate the heroes and we shame the, villain, uh, we shame the villains or anyone who does villainous things. But when it comes to people, this gets very complicated very quickly, doesn't it? Interestingly, uh, last week I was listening to a, a podcast. Uh, it's called This American Life. It's an NPR podcast, and it consistently presents like a very humanistic message. But the episode that aired last week began with a surprising monologue from the host, a man named Ira Glass. He said this, he said, I always find it kind of annoying when people say, I'm a good person. 
oh yeah, sure, I did whatever, but you know, I'm, I'm a good person. And he goes on, I think that says, that being I'm a good person, I think that says nothing real about you at all. Because most of us are a mix of good and bad, right? We have thoughtful days and we have annoyed days. To me, somebody who says I'm a good person is somebody who isn't taking a, a very serious look at everything they do, who they look out for and who they neglect, and all the things they could be doing for others if they were really so good. So Abram. Abram who becomes Abraham. He is the recipient of God's promise and his grace. And he is someone that we should emulate in one key respect. That being, he is a man of faith. He trusted in God. He believed God and that act, that act of faith was counted to him as righteousness. But Abram was 75 years old when he first received God's promise. We don't have any recorded conversations between God and Abram before that. Now, I have lived less than half of that amount of time, and I have managed to establish some habits, patterns that look more like the world than Scripture, than scripture requires of me. And I grew up in the church. So Abram, at 75, without the church, had much more time and opportunity to become worldly. And a text like this shows that. And I think one of the beautiful things about the Bible is its honesty about the people it describes. It doesn't simply give us good people and bad people, righteous people and evil people. Instead, it is honest about who we all really are. We're a complicated mess. On the one hand, we are image bearers of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. This is true of every single person, which is why every human being is worthy of love and respect. This is why we're called to pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, because when we do so, we are praying for people who are made in the image of God, who are fearfully and wonderfully made. But on the other hand, human beings are totally depraved. Now, this is a Christian doctrine that's often misunderstood. Total depravity doesn't mean that people are as bad as they can be. That's not at all what it means. No, instead, it means that there's nothing about us that isn't touched by sin in some capacity. It means that we're never quite as good as we should be. We always have mixed motives. Did I help that person because I really wanted to help that person? Or did I help that person because I want to be seen as a helpful person? And the answer is, usually, yes. We have mixed motives. We, we repent not only of our sin, but our, our good works that have some sin mixed up into it. What it means is that we are all in desperate need of grace. Every single one of us. And so the Bible is not a book that helps us to categorize people as good or bad. And not everything that is described in the Bible is prescribed to us. Instead, the Bible is about the God of grace and how he has been revealed in Jesus, without whom we do terrible things to each other, like what we see here. Abram and Sarai did a terrible thing to Hagar, and they made it worse by dealing harshly with her. And so Hagar did the only thing she thought she could do. She fled. She ran. 
Sometimes this is the only thing that we can think to do. Well, the story to this point in Genesis 16 has been a story of human blindness, people trying to take matters into their own hands and making an absolute mess of things. And the beginning section concludes with Hagar on the run. But while on the run, she has an encounter with the God who sees. And that encounter changes everything. So after verse 6, Hagar is pregnant, she is destitute, she is in the wilderness, and she stops by a spring on the way to shore, which is on the way back to Egypt, her home country. And while there, she is found by the angel of the Lord. Now when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he is usually recognized, described as God himself. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham writes, When, as here, the text simply speaks of a single angel of the Lord, this must be understood as God himself appearing in human form, nearly always to bring good good news or salvation. And many see the appearing of the angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Christ, an appearing of Jesus himself before he took on human flesh. And when God comes to her, it is clear that he knows who she is. He addresses her clearly. He says, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Even though Abram and Sarai didn't seem to care about who she was, God did. He knows her and he listens to her. He asks, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. See, God didn't ask her this question because he didn't know. He knew exactly what was going on. But he was drawing it out of her in an effort to relate to her. And we see Jesus doing this exact thing when he came in the flesh. One of my favorite details about Jesus' encounter with the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, after Jesus healed her, he asks the question, who touched my garments? Now, this question seemed ridiculous to the disciples because they're looking around and saying, who's not touching you right now, Jesus? He's in a crowded marketplace with people just hovering around him. But I don't think Jesus asked this question to obtain information. No, he stops and he asks, who touched me so that he could have a personal encounter with the woman who had touched him? And that's what happens. He draws her out, and in verse 33, we read that she told him the whole truth. This is our God. This is how our God deals with us. He seeks us out and he draws us in. He wants her, Jesus in this text, and God in Genesis 16. He wants these women to, to, to be seen and heard, to feel known and cared for. We see that desire here with Hagar. And she needed that because God tells her to return to Abram and Sarai, the people who have caused her so much pain. He doesn't do so because she has some sort of obligation to them. Instead, it's because he has a plan for Hagar and the child in her womb. 
We read in Genesis 16:10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The promise of descendants is seen throughout Genesis. Six times promise, this promise is given to Abram. And we see this promise uh, also given to Isaac and to Jacob. But Hagar is the only woman to receive such a promise. And Hagar's descendants would be included in Abram's descendants, as numerous as the stars. She, in this passage, is given a place of honor. And she's told that her son's name would be Ishmael, a name which means God hears. See, this would be a perpetual reminder to her of the fact that the God of the universe, the one who made everything, hears her. Every time she said his name, when she spoke softly over him as she was nursing, as he fell asleep in her arms, when she uttered the name Ishmael, she's reminding herself of the fact that God hears me. When she yells out his name in anger, Ishmael, you wild donkey of a man, Even then, there's the reminder of the fact that God hears her. He sees her. He knows her. Regardless of her circumstances, of the brokenness that she had encountered and would continue to encounter, she would know that she was not alone in any of it. Because the God of the universe is a God of seeing. And friends, this wasn't simply true of him back in Bible times. This is still true of him today. Our God sees you. And mothers, today, this is true of you. Our God sees you in your joy. Our God sees you as you prepare the food, half of which may end up on the floor. Our God sees you as you do yet another load of laundry, as you tweak your back trying to wrestle your little ones into your car seats. God sees you. He sees you as you function as a free Uber driver. He sees you as you are on the phone helping your kids with yet another existential crisis. He sees you and he hears you as you pray for your kids that you may not have the degree of contact with that you want. He sees all of the things that no one else appears to see or care about. And he is looking out for you. And if a day like today is cause for pain, either because you are missing someone or because you never had the opportunity to become a parent, God sees you in that as well. I just read an article from a pastor uh, who recently attended a ministry conference it's a conference that he's been a part of for a long time, that, that he's spoken at many times. But this was the first conference that he had attended in several years without his daughter. Um, after many hard years of struggling, he and his wife with infertility, this pastor and his wife had the opportunity to foster a six-day-old little girl with the plan to eventually adopt her. And she lived with them for four years but about eight months ago, she is reunified with her biological family. And he writes, Over the last four years, so much of the hope 
and the possibility of hope and life and a happy ending involved her. I could laugh at the pain and injury caused by infertility because her little voice was cooing in the back of my first talk. A smiling, beautiful representation of so much pain and so much loss, but also so much love and oh, so much hope. He goes on, this year she wasn't there. I sat further back than I usually did because even though I didn't expect it, I could almost hear her little laugh at the magic show. I knew exactly where she'd be playing in the aisle and making friends with random people. This year, even as the pews were filled with new people, there was a void before we even started. This year, I had died. No coming back from this one. And my grief commingled with everyone else's, and in that, in that magic is the gospel. Excuse me, in, in that magic that is the gospel was met with love and hope, grace and help. My grief and your grief and the grief of the world are met by Christ's love and offering of himself. And he closed with these powerful words. It's all hard. Everything is so broken. We need more help than we can ever get. But also, the gospel is true. Grace is real. The gospel is true. Grace is real. And it is available to you. Our God sees you and he cares for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we ask again that you would apply your truth to our hearts. Lord, it is really easy to feel unseen, to feel like nobody cares. So Lord, help us to know the truth that you are the God. You are a God of seeing, that you look after us and you care for us. Father, by your spirit, help us to know that reality this morning. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.